Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for December 8th, 2017. On today's show, we're going to dive into a bunch of news, including Justice League shaking up the DCEU, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, the first trailer has been released, a movie theater chain that actually likes MoviePass, Brian Singer accused of sexual assault again, and the best documentary Oscar shortlist. And in the water cooler, we'll be talking about I, Tanya, Three Billboards, and The Shape of Water. This is Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film writers Y Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Join me over here at the water cooler, guys. Uh, I saw a couple movies this week I just wanted to talk about briefly. Uh, the first of which is I, Tanya. Have either of you seen this film? I've been planning to see it this weekend. I uh, saw it. I saw it at uh, TIFF, and I actually just rewatched the screener uh, last weekend. Well, uh, yeah, this is the Craig Gillespie film about Tanya Harding. It's, um, what would you call it? It's not a biopic. It's kind of, um... I mean, it's sort of a biopic. Yeah. It traces her from, like, her childhood onward. Yeah. It's it, kind of, it's like, a, it's like a very dark comedy is what I would describe it as. Yeah, it was a lot more comedy than I was expecting because I've he- heard a lot of uh, acclaim for... Margot Robbie's uh, Tanya Harding and Allison Jenny as uh, her mother, um, and they are both fantastic. But it's uh, it's a lot funnier than I thought it was going to be. Uh, it, it is very enjoyable. Um, Paul Walter Hauser, which is a guy that uh, is a slash film reader who I've run into in L.A. for the longest time, uh, plays one of the funniest roles in this movie. I I didn't know it was him until the credits came on. Um, But it it was very enjoyable. And uh, I didn't know that was Sebastian Stan, the Winter Soldier, until uh, until the credits, too. So count me as uh, stupid. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I would recommend it to people. But I would uh, say that it's it's a weird balance of comedy and and kind of award drama. It's uh, doesn't quite. I think it doesn't quite feel it get its footing there. But it's 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 a really good and enjoyable film. I mean, Chris, you saw it twice. What 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 made you want to revisit this film? Well, I saw it at TIFF, and then my wife wanted to see it. 
because my wife actually, she grew up in Massachusetts and Nancy Kerrigan was actually one of her neighbors when she was growing up. So that was sort of the whole reason my wife wanted to watch it. So I rewatched it with her and, um, it's okay. I mean, the acting is very good. The performances are good. I think the tone is a little all over the place because it's trying to be funny, but it's also trying to present this sort of sympathetic portrait of Tanya Harding that goes beyond like the tabloid headlines. But at the same time, it's also clearly kind of making fun of her. So it's, it doesn't quite get the tone right. Yeah, and at times it's trying to be Fargo. At other times it's trying to be a broad comedy. It, it's it's really weird in the, in the tone, but but I did enjoy it, so I, I can recommend it. That is I, Tanya. Uh, the other film I saw last night was Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which, by the way, why aren't they just calling this Three Billboards? It, does it really have to be that long of a title? But... Um, this is the Martin McDonough film. Uh, you know him. He did uh, In Bruges and a couple other films. And it stars Frances McDermott as a uh, woman who, a mother who has lost her daughter to murder and rape and is kind of challenging local authorities to solve uh, that, uh, that death. And boy, I was blown away by this film. I didn't expect to, to, to like this as much as I did. Uh, this film much more balances tone uh, better than I, Tanya. Like the, the comedy bits in this are golden. Uh, Sam Rockwell is just amazing in this movie. Like, I'm kind of mad I didn't see this before uh, my critics circle voting because I, I would have voted for him as supporting actor. I, I just loved him in this. And... Uh, and uh, Chris, you saw this as well? No, I haven't seen this yet. I do have a screener of it. I'm probably going to watch it this weekend. Yeah, no, I've I... actually seen it. Oh, what did you think, HT? So I did enjoy it when I first saw it. But after sitting with it for a while, there are parts that bothered me, mostly uh, in the treatment of everything uh, outside. That all the issues that didn't deal with uh, Frances McDormand's character and her uh, rage about the lack of um, empathy for sexual assault. So uh, this this script was written before the Black Lives Matter movement, and you can definitely tell that there's sort of a tone deaf handling of racial issues, and um, that are prevalent in this small town in Missouri. And uh, McDonald himself is. But, I, I, but a, I would argue that though, like if you went to a small town in Missouri now, even mm-hmm. after this Black Lives Matter movement, it would be the same tone deaf way. Yeah, but it's. I think that the flippant way that it kind of treats it, and also the redemption arc for Sam Rockwell's character is a little bit questionable. I enjoyed it when I was watching it because I felt like the tone really matched and it was almost cartoonish in the way that it portrayed like this dark humor and poked fun at all these really serious issues, but at the same time bringing you empathy with it. But um, I think that it's not without its problems. And I kind of love films that have a hero or a protagonist that kind of is going down a dark path and has a bad guy that is kind of, you know, coming, you know, kind of going towards the redemption and is kind of like this parallel. I I kind of enjoy movies that do that. But maybe uh, maybe like you, as I think more and more of this, maybe it maybe it won't be as as high on my list. But I I, I enjoyed it and I would highly recommend this to anybody to see uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. (laughs) Uh, HD, what have you been up to? 
So yesterday I saw The Shape of Water, which is Guillermo del Toro's newest film. It's a dark fantasy starring Sally Hawkins as a mute lab worker who uh, sort of stumbles upon the new lab denizen of the government lab where she works. And he is a fish man from the Amazons, played by Doug Jones, and thus begins a beautiful love story between the two of them. Um, And it's, I'm a huge fan of Guillermo del Toro. I really love his lush, opulent approach to uh, genre and how he has such an unfiltered love of cinema. And that everything, like the Everything that I loved about Guillermo del Toro films comes to a, a peak in in uh, The Shape of Water. So it's not quite as opulent as his past films, but it makes up for, an, for it with its kinky weirdness and its, its many sort of intertextual subplots that go along with it. So there's... Um, there's a lot of there's like this outsider allegory with uh, Sally Hawkins character and all of her friends who are either minorities or they're in the, they're uh, they're homosexuals or they um, or like the creature she meets um, the the fish man they all have this sort of outsider allegory going for it and it's about it's set in the 60s so it really hones into the sort of uh, repressive environment that is that takes place there it's just and it's just just such a beautiful movie. It's incredibly earnest and heartfelt and a night a wonderful homage to classic cinema as well, which I did not expect. There's a couple of dance numbers which took me by surprise, but I was completely overjoyed by and I think could best some of the musical numbers in La La Land. So I was blown away by Shape of Water. It's definitely one of my favorite movies of the year. I don't know if it'll beat Pan's Labyrinth as my favorite Guillermo del Toro movie, but it's up there. I, I loved it a lot. Yeah, I would have to echo uh, your thoughts on that. It's so beautiful. It's, uh, you know, it's not co- quite Pan's Labyrinth, but the atmosphere he creates and the the relationships, and it, it just all feels, you know, it's fantastical but real. And mm-hmm. um, and I think I said this uh, a couple days ago before you, you saw this, but I, I do think some of the stuff in the later – uh, third of the film might uh, might might go too far um, for some audiences. Uh, me, yeah, for me, it was fine. Yeah, the audience I was with was very taken aback by the musical number, for example, because it felt so out of place with the rest of the dark fairy tale that was take that was within the film. But I really liked it. I just I loved everything that Del Toro was throwing at the screen. So I um, I highly recommend The Shape of Water. And Chris, you saw that movie as well, right? Yes, I also saw that at, at TIFF, and I also just rewatched that again on screener. And yeah, I agree with pretty much everything you you both said. It's it's one of my favorite movies. It's actually right now it's currently number two on my list of best of the year. Oh wow! Uh, and we'll, we will be posting our best of of the year later on this year, or maybe early next. So watch out for that on the site. We're currently in the beginning stages of that. Uh, but let's jump into the news uh, first. Up in the news. Um, we've been talking about Justice League and that the troubled production of that film, uh, it has now been revealed that the film originally featured Superman in his black suit from the comics. Um, of course that would have been a darker take and that gels with Zack Snyder. What do we know, Chris? 
Right. So I, I remember before Justice League came out, I kept seeing a lot of fan theories, sort of hoping that when Superman came back from the dead, he'd be wearing the black suit that he wore in the, the comics after the after the death of Superman arc there. And apparently it wasn't just a, a fan wish because the cinematographer of Justice League, Fabian Wagner, recently confirmed that they really did shoot scenes with uh, Superman in the black suit. Um, he doesn't say like where those scenes take place. And I don't really even know where they would take place because he's, you know, super in the movie Superman, you know, comes back from the grave and then he sort of just instantly becomes Superman again. So I'm not really sure where that would happen, but apparently they did shoot those scenes. So this is just yet another uh, item to add to the growing list of deleted justice league scenes. Um, and I, I wonder if like there are is some remnants of this in the actual film. Like I wonder if like they just color corrected his suit because theoretically you could do that, right? Theoretically, it's just the black version of that suit, and you could uh, kind of like Turner movies uh, or who used to do that? Not Turner movie classics. It was, it was. Uh, it was TNT. It was also owned by Ted Turner. So. Yes, they they would go into black and white movies and color them, and it looked really bad. But probably today. You could probably pull that off pretty well, I'm assuming. Um, but uh, obviously his face, his CG face, was what everybody was complaining about. Um, and, you know, Justice League did not do that well at the box office. Um, I wouldn't say it was com- a complete disaster, but it's not a success. And uh, the, the this is shaking up uh, the DC movie universe. HT, what do we know? Yes. So um, we reported a couple weeks ago that Justice League was set to lose Warner Brothers up to 50 to 100 million dollars due to their poor the poor movies um, box office performance. So because of this, Warner Brothers is taking drastic action and doing a huge shakeup, not only within the DCU, but at their executive offices as well. So the first big piece of news is that producer John Berg, who was initially at the head of the comic book movie table uh, alongside Jeff Johns at Warner Brothers, uh, is being removed. So he no longer has his spot at the head of that uh, comic book division. He's no long- He's still at Warner Brothers, but not in that capacity. So this was a, a big thing because Warner Brothers was counting on Berg and Jeff Johns to sort of lead the DCEU into a new era. So now Jeff Johns is still at the at the top, but he um, for, for will now. be taking yeah for now. <laughs> it seems like he'll be taking uh, most of the the leadership role. Uh, so sort of the Kevin Feige of Warner Brothers DCEU. Um, we'll see if he's up to the task. And uh, other things is that um, the they are considering to move the DC movies into the studio's main film production arm. Uh, so kind of like the model of what Sony and Fox do with their comic book films um, and other than rather than Disney, which lets Marvel Studios kind of do their own thing. Uh, and another thing is that director Matt Reeves, who is doing the upcoming The Batman solo movie, is allegedly looking for a fresh talent to play Bruce Wayne in the upcoming Batman solo film. So that seems to put an end to the discussions on whether Ben Affleck is coming back for the role because he's been sort of waffling for the past year on whether he's going to return, whether he's going to leave. So we have a couple rumors about who will play the part, uh, the latest including John Hamm, which we don't know for sure at all. But um, that is a huge thing. So 
Ben Affleck likely won't reprise the role for the Batman, which I think takes place after Flashpoint. Correct? Yes. yes. Or, um, or or comes out after Flashpoint. Comes not, out after. We, we don't know. Uh, we don't know the chronology of this whole thing. But it should say uh, Flashpoint. I've talked to people who have. Uh, you know, read that script, and from from what I get, that that's like a Justice League uh, 1.5. It you know brings mm-hmm. back all the major talents. I think I've said this on the podcast before. So the way the script is now, it's kind of more of the same. So they're gonna, I think, unless Ben Affleck's gonna be in that, which I think he's is still rumored that he could reprise his role as Batman. I, I think they're gonna have to completely redo what their plans are for that movie. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't think they're that far along in that. So. Um, yeah, so um, the rest of the slate is sort of remains the same because they can't really they've got the ball rolling with Aquaman, Wonder Woman 2, Flashpoint, Suicide Squad 2. So they can't really stop that ball. But who knows what other drastic measures uh, Warner Brothers will take from, from now on. The trailer for Jurassic World sequel uh, Fallen Kingdom came out last night because um, I think they were doing a panel at Comic-Con Brazil. Which, by the way, I, I guess apparently has more more people going to Comic Con Brazil than Comic Con in San Diego, which is insane. Um, <laughs> but uh, the the trailer came out, and I uh, Ben on the site Ben Pearson d- did a fantastic breakdown of the trailer, going you know frame by frame, uh, many observations, some some actually some really cool stuff here that you can check out, uh, including by the way, I'm not sure if you guys noticed, but that uh, at one point. The raptor that was trained by by Chris Pratt's character Owen, uh, you know, comes down and jumps onto a, a car, and that car is actually the car from Jurassic Park One, the one that uh, you know falls down from the tree during that whole climactic sequence. So mm. uh, it looks like we are going to be returning to some of the, the locations of that first film. Anyways, so uh, I, I have a feeling that I'm going to be the only one saying positive things about this trailer. So let me first start start off with you guys. What did you think of this trailer, HT? I thought it was fine. Um, I can't say I was extremely excited for Jurassic World 2 because I really disliked the first Jurassic World. I thought it relied too heavily on the nostalgia components and was not a strong film on its own and had way too many moments of unneeded unnecessary brutality against random characters such as the assistant played by Katie McGrath. It was, and all the characters are flat in that film, but I won't go into my whole spiel against Jurassic World. The Jurassic World 2 trailer was exciting. It was sleek. I did really like the Jeff Goldblum cameo. I don't know if it'll be more than just a cameo, but um, the Which, by the way, scene... he's he's wearing an all-black suit, and he's in this uh, courtroom. I actually think this is fascinating because it seems like they're setting him up as almost the bad guy for you know the third he... film because he's mm-hmm. he's basically in a court. I guess reading between the lines of what he's saying there, he's he's basically saying let the dinosaurs die in this you know extinction mm-hmm. level event that's going to happen on this island, which is kind of crazy. Anyways, go yeah, ahead. I mean it's in line with his uh, his own thoughts on on the dinosaurs because he's only had bad experiences with them, and as a chaos mathematician or whatever he was, he predicted that the dinosaurs were always going to be a bad call from the beginning. So it doesn't surprise me that he's in this role and uh it's interesting putting a familiar face to the i think yeah some sort of semi-villain role because in this new franchise we've been taught to empathize more with the dinosaurs and with chris pratt's um dinosaur 
razor than we have in previous ones where they're just the monsters. So, yeah, I, I, I thought it was a fine trailer. It had a good premise, I think, for a sequel, which might be better than past sequels of Jurassic Park. Um, which this is a pretty low standard to be fair. So, uh, we'll see. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's my thoughts. Um, I was a fan of Jurassic world. So, uh, you know, I'm excited about this movie, seeing this trailer. Uh, it seems like the story is kind of just in a, uh, setup to create these cool action moments and maybe some tense moments. We get some glimpses of that in the trailer as well. Um, I'm not sure if, you know, it's going to be smarter than Jurassic world. I know that was a lot of people's problems, but it looks like it, it could be funner than Jurassic world. Um, and it should be mentioned that Colin Trevorrow, the producer, uh, writer, uh, he says that everything in this trailer is from the first 57 minutes of the movie. So we're not even seeing the back half of this film in this trailer, which is kind of nuts because looking at this trailer, you're like, there's a lot of action and you're kind of like, they're spoiling too much. You know, they're showing Rexy and they're showing blue and, you know, a lot of action. But apparently this only shows the first half of the movie, which is kind of crazy. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on this trailer? It was, it was okay. I, um, I, I don't hate Jurassic world. I think it's, you know, it's nowhere near Jurassic park in terms of quality, but it's, it's an entertaining enough film, I guess. Um, can can, we, can so, we all agree that Jurassic world is the, the best Jurassic park film since Jurassic park? Oh, I don't yeah. know. I mean, Jurassic yeah, I, park three was okay. It had the talking Raptor scene. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> Where the, the raptor's on the plane and he, he says, Alan, that's a pretty great scene. I don't know. Or, 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 or the scene in Lost World where uh, Jeff Goldblum's daughter does uh, gymnastics. Gymna- uh, yeah, gymnastics to defeat the dinosaurs. Yeah, that was, that was good. God, I forgot about that. <laughs> but, um, I mean, this trailer, it's a, it's a well-made trailer. It looks entertaining. It looks like a big, dumb monster movie, which is pretty much what this franchise has turned into at this point. Um, I will say I remain shocked that effects from special effects from 1993 look better than the effects in this trailer for a film from now. And I know people will argue and say, Oh, they're not completely finished yet. This is just a trailer, but that's the argument I always hear. And then I see the movie and I think, yeah, those effects don't look very good. To be fair, this movie isn't out for what six, seven months. Like, no, I I get it, but this is a very effects-heavy trailer. So I'm going to argue that if you're going to include these scenes in your trailer, you should probably render them just a little bit better. I mean, <laughs> just just consider it. That's you know, again, it's 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 not like atrocious, but it's it's nothing compared to how they looked in 1993, which is you know they look real in that movie oh, 1993 just holds up so well yeah i actually was on the set of jurassic world and i was talking to john knowles who you know obviously the guy that uh, uh helped create photoshop and he you know was in charge of a lot of the ilm stuff including jurassic park and i, w- I was talking to him on the set of that just like offhandedly not as an interview like why is the effects on that movie so good in like stuff nowadays doesn't compare. And he was literally, he basically said that uh, it's because they, they, they invested so much time and resources to make those things blend in with the practical. And there's actually, I forget how many shots of visual effects there are in that movie, but it's really just a tiny fraction. 
Like it, it's a lot less than you probably remember it being in a lot of the shots that you might even think are CG or actually, you know, a practical uh, T-Rex and stuff like that. And obviously they're, you know, using, uh, you know, they put the T-Rex scene in the dark and the rain to, you know, help cover up stuff. But I, I do agree with you. There, there is not much these days that seems to do better than some of the effects in, the, in the, that movie. Although I would argue, like, you see this this footage, which seems to be like a uh, video flashback of uh, Owen meeting Blue as a as a baby. Is, am I reading that right, or is that like a new dinosaur? It seems I to be. I think it's a flashback. It's a flashback. Not, yeah. yeah. I don't know. That looked good to me. I'm not sure if that's CG or if that's uh, animatronic, but it. I think I, I remember reading that that is actually a puppet. So I think that might explain why it looks better than, you know, a fully CGI creature. Yeah. And I also thought the T Rex in the back of the uh, shipping container also looked good. But I don't know. My, my, you know, I also did not think Tarkin looked bad in, in Rogue One. So <laughs> take what I say with a grain of salt. I'm excited for this movie. I, uh, you know, I, I don't, I feel like in today's day and age, uh, where a lot of these kind of big epic sci-fi movies are trying to be like, you know, Chris Nolan smart and stuff. I, I, you know, I'm fine with the big dumb dinosaur movie. I mean, like I, I want escapism a little bit, and uh, as long as it's good, I, I want to have some good action. And with J. A. Biona. At the charge here, I'm, I'm interested to see how it how it plays off. And it's, also, this trailer doesn't really show much, but we get to see a couple glimpses of these the new cast in this film. Like, uh, there's two new characters, and they look uh, both interesting. Anyways, uh, do either of you have any more to say about the Jurassic World trailer? Nope. Nope. Okay, then we are moving on to uh, we've been talking about Movie Pass for. You know, since we've been doing this podcast, uh, generally, we've been talking about this movie pass and their nine ninety nine subscription model. Uh, AMC has been uh, very, very against this program, as have a lot of other movie exhibitors. But just yesterday, Studio Movie Grill had released a press release announcing that uh, they have movie passes single handedly boosted their attendance. Chris, what do we know? Yes, they don't say exactly the, they don't give numbers about how much more increase it is, but uh, Studio Movie Grill, which is one of those, it's sort of like you know Draft House where you can order food while you watch a movie. But they say in the year since they've agreed to work with Movie Pass, they've seen a, a drastic uptick in average movie going. Even for smaller independent films, they use uh, Lady Bird, the the new Greta Gerwig film, as an example. That that's like doing killing killer numbers for them, and they attribute that to uh, just people using Movie Pass. So they're apparently Studio Movie Grill is apparently the one theater chain who is a okay with Movie Pass. Kind of makes sense because if you think about it, uh, if you're going to, I'm not sure. If, uh, either of you have gone to like draft houses do you have like any kind of those kind of options in your area i have something called the angelica it's not quite as um indie as draft house but it shows a fair amount of both indie and mainstream theaters and uh, movies and has food and gourmet drinks so kind of on the same level what about you chris 
Uh, I do not have a draft house near me. There is, they did open a studio movie grill, not really near me, but in Pennsylvania, but I've, I have yet to go there. Well, I can tell you just from my experience at Draft House, uh, you know, going to South by and uh, Fantastic Fest, um, it's hard to see a movie at like a place like the Draft House without like ordering a drink or food. And I feel like, you know, I can easily go see a movie at my local multiplex without ordering anything. But once you sit down there and there's a menu in front of you and, you know, the, you know, you can just write cookies on a piece of paper and put it in front of you and it magically appears and um, I, I i think for for a you know a theater chain like that uh that is getting more people to go into the movies it, you're basically getting more people to come into your restaurant uh so i could definitely see how you know movie pass would be a huge ex- advantage over a traditional multiplex um but uh i think you said that studio movie grill has a has a partnership with with a uh, movie pass uh, yeah, I, I believe that that just means they're they agree to work with them to you know to use the the, the card there. Yeah, and I'm, I'm I'm just wondering, uh, you know, you always have to be skeptical about motives of like a press release like this. It seems like you know uh, their ideals kind of align and their financial motives align a little bit. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't I know I don't want to accuse anyone of lying, but like oh, I no, said, no, no. I'm not saying there's... that. I'm just saying like they, yeah. <laughs> no, but what I was going to say is, like I said, in, in the a press release they sent out, they didn't really give like any numbers. So it's not really clear how much it's increased, but it, they just say it has increased. Yeah. And uh, we've been talking these last few days about Brian Singer. He was fired from Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, the Queen biopic. Uh, and days later, we have learned that he is an accused of sexual assault. Again, HD, what do we know? So a new lawsuit comes uh, three days after Brian Singer was fired from Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, This lawsuit alleges that Singer uh, raped a 17-year-old boy in 2003 at a yacht party. So um, this man, who was 17 in 2003, uh, accused him of coercing, uh, of forcing oral and anal sex on him and then attempting to coerce him into silence by saying that he was a producer in Hollywood and that he could get help him get into acting as long as he never said anything about the incident. So this is not the first time, like you said, that Ryan Singer has been accused of sexual assault. Uh, it happened, there was a case a couple years ago um, when Michael Egan sued uh, Ryan Singer, uh, alleging that he forced him to have sex at parties and drugged him. And then there was a uh, sort of controversy in one of his earlier films in which he um, apparently was accused of sexual sort of misconduct in a, in a uh, shower scene in which he forced his underage teen actors to strip. So it, there's been sort of like, there's been a lot of controversy about sexual assault and sexual misconduct that has followed Brian Singer over the years, especially considering the, um, the pool parties, the wild pool parties, uh, quote unquote, that he often throws that are often populated by underage boys. So it's something that I feel like people were waiting for the penny to drop after Bohemian Rhapsody uh, fired him from the set. And even though he said that it was because um, he wanted to um, help an ailing parent versus the um, Bohemian Rhapsody's explanation that he was 
uh, unprofessional and was late to set and didn't even appear to set for a couple of days. So it's it's def- it's an ongoing story. We'll see if this goes yeah. anywhere, but it's a part of a whole other part of this whole new sexual assault and sexual uh, misconduct awareness that's happening in Hollywood right now. The Harvey Weinstein effect is what they're calling mm-hmm. it. And, um, you know, it should be mentioned that there there are a lot of cynical people <laughs> covering this business that believe that uh, Brian Singer being let go from this movie uh, was a preemptive move that that, you know, obviously he's had a past uh, an accused past of of doing like this and like not showing up on set and that kind of thing and you know obviously he, he's gotten away with it in the past it it does seem a little uh, coincidental that he gets fired a couple days before this lawsuit is filed almost as if you know the studio knew that this was coming and mm-hmm. but, who knows <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I know some uh, some high up Hollywood journalists believe that uh, that might be the bigger reason. Um, but I, I think it's fair to say that uh, filmmakers' behavior, uh, you, you can't get away with what they, they, they used to, either with the sexual assault, with the you know, his power moves, these, you know, manic activity. Like, you know, it, it, you're going to be more accountable in uh, Hollywood 2018. So... Uh, but moving on from that, let's get to award season. Uh, I know the Academy has announced a short list of the best documentary feature films. And uh, I know that we are sometimes criticized on this podcast and on the site of not covering uh, the littler films. So I thought, Chris, uh, since you wrote this article up for the site, if you could uh, give us a glimpse at the best documentary features that we should be looking out for and uh, maybe be checking out leading up to the award season. Right. Well, I will say one documentary that I'm I'm very surprised is not on here and I would recommend is a documentary called Dawson City Frozen Time, which is great and really should have been nominated. But that just got added to Filmstruck. So seek that out if you're if you can. But some other things that have been that are on the shortlist to be nominated are um, Ex Libris, which is a documentary all about the New York public public library. Um, what else? There's the uh, Inconvenient Truth sequel, which is called uh, an Inconvenient Sequel. So there you go. <laughs> um, I, I I saw that one. Have you seen that? I have not seen that yet. No. It's. It uh, I mean, it, it, it's. It the information is good, but it's very kind of by the numbers, and it's not. Uh, I want to say remarkable in any way, other than that it kind of covers this whole bit about that Paris Treaty that kind of just got overturned by, or you know, like that Trump was trying to overturn uh, right at the beginning of his uh, presidency. So uh, I don't know. I, I'm surprised that like, what were the other ones on this list? Uh, there's a, a film called Icarus, which is very timely because it's all about. Um, the Russian sports doping scandal, which is pretty much what resulted in Russia being banned from the upcoming Olympics. So that's very timely. That's actually on Netflix right now, if you're interested in watching it. Um, there's a lot of stuff on here that is officially like Netflix films, which I thought was interesting because a lot of people were worried that Netflix wouldn't be considered awards contenders, but I guess the one category they're able to get in on is uh, documentaries. There's at least four Netflix movies in on this short list. 
I'm kind of surprised that the that Gawker documentary isn't on here. That's another Netflix uh, release, I believe, right? Um, right. Because that seems kind of uh, very relevant. Uh, but have you seen any of the other ones of the, on, on this list, Chris? I actually have not. Um, I, I have the screener for Jane, which is about Jane Goodall. So I'm going to I tend to watch that very soon. So but yeah. Yeah, I know the the one I want to see most out of the ones I have not seen on this list is Icarus, which you which you've mentioned. Uh, but we will have to see uh, as this gets narrowed down uh, to the nominations, which will come out uh, what in January? Jan- yeah, January twenty third is when they're announced. Yeah, usually when uh, I think we're at Sundance or something. Uh, but okay, that does it for the news for today. Uh, Chris, where can we find more of your work online? I'm at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at CEvangelista413. HD, where can we find you? You can read my work at SlashFilm.com. I'm on Twitter at HTranBui, and I have a podcast, The Millennial Falcon Podcast, on iTunes. You can find me at SlashFilm.com, at SlashFilm on Twitter. You can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. If you want to send us an email, send it to Peter at SlashFilm.com. That could be feedback, criticism, a question for the mailbag, praise. We like praise. And uh, if, if you want to praise us, go to iTunes. Give us a rating. Give us a review. That helps us out quite a bit. Uh, spread the word. Tell your friends. And we will see you on Monday.